back to another episode of Closing the Loop. And Happy New Year, everyone. To get 2023 started with a bang, I'm honored to have my good friend Ray Youssef join me for a discussion. Ray is the founder and CEO of Paxful, a popular peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange, which offers users over 350 different payment methods to choose from. Paxful has placed a particular focus on what Ray refers to as the global south, where billions of unbanked or underbanked people are effectively cut off from global markets and subject to numerous forms of financial repression. In this conversation, Ray and I discuss how Bitcoin and Paxful have helped to level the playing field for those people by giving them greater access to global financial infrastructure, and in doing so, helping them to circumvent authoritarian regulations which seek to confiscate their wealth and limit their financial freedom. As you'll hear, Ray is extremely passionate about this work and takes his mission, providing everyone with the financial tools they need to build wealth and unleash their full potential, very seriously. Enjoy. There we go. Ray, it's great to see you again, man. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, brother. It's always good to be talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Um, lots to discuss. Lots been going on. I'm, I, I'm glad that we're doing this doing this at the beginning of, of 2023 because I think it's going to be a really good year. And I'm not talking about the price of Bitcoin. I just think lots of uh, lots of good stuff is on the horizon. So to get this kicked off, you, you and I have spoken many times before, but for those of the listeners who aren't familiar with you, can I get you to introduce yourself, but also add into that? I'd like everyone to get a, a, a sense of the scale of, of Paxful. So whatever you're you're willing to share in terms of, I don't know, trade volume or revenues or users or whatever, just so people have context for this conversation, like, you know, the, the scale of things that we're discussing and the work that you're doing. Absolutely. So my name is Ray, Ray Youssef. I'm a immigrant from Egypt. I grew up in New York City with my parents, uh, working uh, in our newsstand in Hell's Kitchen in the 80s and 90s. Quite a time and quite a place to be alive. Learned a lot. Very thankful for those lessons now. I've been a serial entrepreneur for um, almost 24 years. I went to City College and uh, I started Paxful about seven and a half, almost eight years ago. And it was started because there wasn't enough Bitcoin in circulation, especially in the places where I believed people needed it most. And I was born in Africa, and I always believed Africa could benefit greatly from Bitcoin because even seven years ago, I, um, I had an understanding or a beginning to understand how these people in what I like to call the global south, some people like the third world, I don't like that, I don't think it's right, the emerging world, a little bit better, but I call it the global south, and see Africa, India, Southeast Asia, anywhere other than the Western world, these people suffer from something I call economic apartheid, which has kept them poor, so I created Paxful to solve that problem by getting Bitcoin into their hands, and then I just kind of watched them, and I listened to them, and they taught me everything I know, Now, Paxful has been a pretty successful experiment in two ways. Number one, it proved that Bitcoin could be useful for real use cases in the places that people need it most every single day, meaning payments and remittances. And I credit the people of Western Africa, especially my Nigerian brothers and my Nigerian sisters, with proving that use case, and they have done so amazingly well. Nigeria leads the whole world in cryptocurrency adoption, Bitcoin adoption, and it's our biggest market. Then it's the place that I went to first. I said, boots on the ground over there. And they taught me everything I know about all the problems that they have and how Bitcoin can solve those problems. So to give you a scale of Paxful, you know, it has been successful 
and it's showing Bitcoin and what its killer app really is, but also it got the first Bitcoins into the global south, especially into Africa, into Western Africa. And it's the Nigerian people, particularly the youth that helped make that happen. So Paxful is about 350 people right now. And we do, I think we believe we cleared well over $5 billion in trade volume last year. Now, that might be nothing compared to exchanges like Binance, which probably do that daily. But this isn't, you know, a highly speculative wash trading, front running back. There's none of that going on here. They're just real people trading with each other using Bitcoin as a kind of clearing layer for all forms of fiat. So this is real money, real trades. This volume is real. It is not faked. So we have about almost 11.7 million users right now, about 4 million of them in Africa, the vast majority of them in the global south. And Paxil continues to grow, and we're seeing an exponential growth curve happening right now, even with all the barriers of being an American company and doing American compliance and American KYC. Why? Because the demand is there. And peer-to-peer volume has grown steadily, even through the bear markets. And even now, our volume continues to grow. There's a lot there. Uh, sure is. And there's, there's, there's parts of your story that we've discussed before, but just digging into a little bit more on the, on the Paxful side first, it's interesting, you know, it's to me, when I think about Paxful, I almost think about like a global money market or a global market for monies and quasi monies. And in a way, it's kind of helping to elucidate the Bitcoin thesis, right? Because it's saying, put all the monies that are available in a pot. And when I say all the monies, I mean, in-game monies, I mean, gift cards, I mean, phone credits, anything that can be used as money in the world. And as we're, as Paxful kind of showcases, there's a lot of things that are used as money or quasi-monies. And what it does is it throws them all in the mix in a, in a market where they can be traded against one another. And it kind of reveals like, well, what is the best money? And it, it seems like to me, it's saying, well, Bitcoin is the best money. And therefore, it can be used to trade amongst all the other monies. You have this type of money. OK, we'll use the best money to trade it into this thing. You have this type of money. OK, we'll use the best money to trade it into this thing. Uh, and it, it's amazing how because you have such a high quality money, let's say like Bitcoin, it's allowing for this interoperability of all these other monies, quasi monies around the world and enabling all this trade that, you know, you often talk about. So, I mean, is that how you see Paxful as kind of a market for money, which is not only facilitating trade, but also revealing, you know, seems to me what, what, what it might be the best money in the world, which I think we probably both, both agree is Bitcoin. Absolutely. It's a marketplace. That's what we call it. It's barter for money. Right. And Bitcoin is just used as that central clearing layer, that single asset that you can clear and exchange everything else with. In fact, when you combine Bitcoin with a peer to peer marketplace like Paxful or local Bitcoins or Binance PPP or any of them, what you essentially get is a universal translator and transporter for money. Because if you have a gift card, you can turn it into Bitcoin and then you can take that Bitcoin and turn it into another gift card or a cash deposit in Thailand or a bank transfer in the UK or a PayPal deposit in Kenya or anything can become anything else. We support hundreds of payment methods. We're adding them all the time. And this is tremendously useful, not just for uh, you know global settlements, like from Africa to Europe or America or Latin America to Southeast Asia, but even within regions like you know Africa, for example, has 2,000 payment networks. 
only 3% of them actually talk to each other. Right. So there's tremendous need for something like this. Tremendous need. And you only understand how big the need is when you actually go there on the ground and you ask people, like, tell me about your daily life with money. And you, you'll be shocked at what you learn. I'll give you a quick example. You know, I always wonder, you know, to my friends in Africa, and I asked this question just on my last trip in Nigeria, don't you have a debit card you can use online? And they're like, well, I have a Nigerian debit card because I have a bank account. And most Paxful users in Africa actually have bank accounts, mind you. So he has a Nigerian bank, several actually. But he says he can't use that card online outside of Nigeria, right? And I say, okay, yeah, because it's not U.S. dollars. He's like, okay. I asked him, can't you get a U.S. dollar debit card? He's like, yes, I can. But I have to go to the black market Mm. and I have to buy U.S. dollars at double the official rate. And then when he takes those U.S. dollars and puts it in a U.S. dollar domicile account in Nigeria, the bank will say, okay, we'll add U.S. dollars to your debit card. You can spend it online. But guess what? When they spend that money, those U.S. dollars off their debit card, they're spending at the official rate, which is half of what the unofficial rate is, meaning he pays 100%. He pays twice as much if he wants to access U.S. dollars from his debit card. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. It can allow him to get through all of those limitations. And it's even worse if you want to do a direct bank-to-bank transfer, if you want to buy something outside of the country. The central bank will flat out not allow you to access U.S. dollars. They just won't do it because they're saving those U.S. dollars for themselves, Mm. right? And their friends, hence to the black market. So those people pay double for financial services if they are lucky. I know this is probably a silly question, and I'm I'm not naive to all the forms of corruption in the world. But how and why is it that you know? Let's just take Nigeria for example, and the example that you just gave. How is it that that approach and those regulations are politically sustainable? Let's say, like, how is it that you know? I, I I've heard also that you can only spend a hundred dollars U.S. dollars a month uh, out of your official or you know, sanctioned or institutional account, let's say, yeah. you know, government sanctioned bank account. How is it that these rules are able to be maintained given that they're so restrictive? It's a great question. And it's not just that they're able to be maintained, but no one wants to change them. And it shocked me. It's like, why, why is this the case? And it's because there are people in the governments and it's not just Nigeria, it's Egypt as well. It's all these countries. I'll give you an example from Egypt in a minute. There's something called round tripping, where basically if you are a friend of the central bank of Nigeria or Egypt or whoever, you can go in there and buy dollars at the official price. And then those people will go and sell those dollars on the black market at double the price. Mm. And then they just rinse and repeat. This is arbitrage, right? The same thing that actual traders do with gift cards or bank transfers. These friends of the central bank are doing the same thing. And they're making, you know, 100% profits each time, meaning they don't want the spread to go down. They want it to be high so they make more profit each time, even though it means the whole country is getting poorer and poorer and poorer. The Naira in 1980s was equal to more than a dollar. Now it's the black market rate is almost 800 to one. Can you imagine how much poorer that country has gone? It was said to be a superpower in the 70s and 80s. And now look, and it's not just Nigeria. Egypt is the same way. Every global South country is the same way. My mother just lost half of her life savings 
The Central Bank of Egypt said, hey, deposit your U.S. dollars with us. We'll give you 25% interest, APY. Well, the inflation was around 45% APY, and then they dropped the, inter the interest rate to 9%. So she's been robbed, and they won't even let her take her money out. And this is the same story everywhere. So you can blame it on corruption on these short-sighted people in the government, but the truth is, the corruption is coming from outside the country. It is the Western powers that are putting pressure on these governments. Do what we say or else. And the thing that really hurts them the most is that they are not allowed to print up their own money and put their people to work. Because they say, you know, they say, for example, someone, say the president of Egypt decides to print up billions of pounds and start putting his people to work building a huge new city and putting billions into renovating the countryside, well then, he would get a call from the IMF and say, hey, you can't do that and put your people to work printing up your own money, which is their right. They say, no, you have to borrow our money at interest or else we'll destroy your currency because we control price discovery on the Forex. And that's exactly what they did to Egypt. The Egyptian pound went down by 45% since April. Why? Because CC created all that money and built a whole new city, super high-tech new city for 5.6 billion people and spending billions to renovate the entire countryside. This is the gun that every global South government has to their head. They cannot access their greatest generative opportunity, which is create their own money and put their people to work, and that's why they're poor. I call it economic apartheid. You can just call it straight-up evil. This is what humanity is dealing with. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because when we talk about the things that increase the wealth gap and inequality and that effectively hamper and put a burden on human flourishing, broadly speaking, it is, you know, it's not, you know, we're in, we're in a situation where perhaps it's not as egregious as in the countries that you just mentioned, but you know, you said like it's every country's right to print that money and put their citizens to work. But, we, you know, taking it a step further, we would say, yeah, but even that is its own burden because you're siphoning off the capital of the money savers. And you as the central government are saying we're going to decide where it should be allocated. And that itself, I think, you know, puts a, a damper on human flourishing because the way that humans flourish is being able to work, being able to get paid you know, for their expenditure of time and energy, and then them themselves, each individual deciding how that value is going to be redeployed after they've accumulated it without being, you know, stolen from in the process. Now that may, and I think that is obviously the promise of Bitcoin, right? Now what, you know, it's going to be a process of, of getting to the place where everyone in the world has that available to them. But, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that is one of the benefits of Paxful is that people, no matter where they are, no matter what monies or quasi monies or government monies or whatever the hell it is they have access to, they're able to convert it into a money where they no longer are able to be stolen from. And then they are fully in charge of how they deploy the proceeds of their previously accumulated energy and time. Absolutely. It just enables free markets. That's all it really does. But you can't have free markets without free payments. You know, people need to be able to exchange the value of their work. If it's trapped in a gift card, in a bank account, in cash, in a wallet years, whatever, game credits there, it allows the money to flow again. Because Bitcoin is that magical money that allows everything to just flow, all that human value to just flow, whether it's in whatever country it's in, borders are eliminated, networks are all, you know, congealed together. And that's what creates free markets, and free markets create wealth. 
Unfortunately, we're not living in a world of free markets. Samson Mao, he had a great tweet. He basically said central banking enables a kind of clandestine communism. And it's sure. very true. Because the central mm-hmm. tenet of communism, the operating tenant, is actually enabled by central banks to operate within capitalism. Right? It creates these little cells where these you know, these central forces can decide, oh, we like this guy, so let the money keep flowing. Oh, we don't like this guy, so let's put the screws on them and cut out the spigot and just let a drip come through and let's see how he likes that and then maybe he'll turn around. So you get all these little cells and clusters all festering within their little hole of economic apartheid, this segregation. And that's how they can control the world. It is absolutely communism to the subversion of money. And Bitcoin is that one thing that when combined with, you know, human business acumen and hustle allows all the money to flow again. And then, you know, it doesn't just piss off the central bankers. It also pisses off their cronies who they reward with this, you know, corrupted arbitrage, this round tripping, right? Because they're like, oh, these people are able to do the same thing that we're doing now, they don't like that either. And so the evil doesn't, you know, it it just comes raining down from the top and then on the government level and then the government level for their cronies. And it just, it just, they just start mimicking each other. And then the people are left with absolutely nothing. It's like that line from 1984, like they just want to stamp our skulls into the ground, right? And you do that with money. And it still seems like a free and open society, but it's absolutely not. It's what Goethe yeah. said. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those they think that are free. And we realize, the two of us, we're certainly not free. And probably everyone listening to this podcast and more and more people are waking to, up to that every single day, which is great. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think it was actually one of the, I don't know how many uh, tenants or, you know, the list in the, I think it was a communist manifesto, like, you know, how to how to bring about this uh, communist utopia. I think controlling the issue of money through a central bank was, if not number one on that list, it was definitely on the list. And I mean, in a sense, you got to hand it to people, to those people who established that stuff. Cause it's a, tr- it was a tremendous sleight of hand. It's like, Oh sure. Yeah. No, maybe not in a communist nation, but let's take, you know, the U S for example, or any so-called free country that has a, a central bank like this, that issues fiat currency. It's like, Oh sure. Yeah. You're all free. You can do what you want. You know, you're free country, everything, democracy, but we get to control the money. And people went along with that and say, okay, sure, it makes sense, sounds reasonable enough, we're free and you know, we can have free markets. Like, no, you can't have free markets if, if you have a centralized issuer of the currency who can manipulate the cost of capital at will and who can siphon funds as a result in whatever means they want, pay off people, you know, uh, execute corrupt agendas, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's not a free market whatsoever. Absolutely not. And you know, if you want to look at the history of all this, I don't want to sound cheesy here, but you can honestly take it back 2,000 years. It was like, think about how cancerous and insidious this system is. It has metastasized multiple times. Probably every decade it mutates into something more abominable, and new and new, more and more instruments are created to just rob people. But this whole experiment started, you know, kind of innocently about 2,000 years ago, right? When the priests of the temple were like, hey, we want to be paid. You know, everyone had to pay the temple, you know, their tax, their tithe, right? And they paid with the shekel. So they forked the shekel into a half shekel, a little piece of wood, a token mm. that you had to go and buy from them. And that's so we could pay your taxes to them. And of course, you know, it was up to each priest how much you wanted to charge for that token on any given day. And that's how they made, they made their money, right? 
it doesn't seem that insidious when you look at it, but it might just seem like these guys are just trying to, you know, create their own little token here and make a little tax for themselves. But actually, that experiment was the genesis of this entire system of usury and corruption that we have now. If people mm-hmm. are willing to accept that, then the central talent of what Christians call usury, Muslims call riba, is permissible psychologically. And then from there, they just kept building up on top of it until we have all of this, you know, we have this massive system of derivatives and all dimensions and a full kaleidoscope of speculation that is meant to rob people at every possible angle. Jesus was sent to intercept that whole plan, right? Right at his Genesis point. We all know what happened there. He had to get out of Dodge, right? It didn't work. And here we are 2,000 years later trying to counter all this. And what do we have to do it? We have peer-to-peer electronic money. People Mm -hmm. pushing this themselves. Bitcoin is, it's the first time in human history that everyone on the planet has been able to do this. Another history lesson. 1,400 years ago, a similar system was attempted that exists to this day, but it was only in a very small classification. Well, not very small, but it was relatively localized. The Muslims, because they were trading tremendously around, you know, that whole area where the Roman Empire was, and the Roman Empire did not allow agency, agency meaning like third-party payments. America doesn't allow them either. None of the Western powers like it. Because they couldn't do that, they couldn't trade properly, so they came up with something called Hawala, which just means money transfer in Arabic, right? And because they had this trust network among their religion and this holy text, you know, which they considered the first immutable ledger, right? The last testament, the Quran, it worked and it still survived to this day and it solved the problem of agency and third party payments. And here we are now, six, um, sorry, 1400 years later, doing it again with an immutable ledger that anyone can use and no one has to trust. So here we are again. Are we going to make it stick this time? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting also, and this is a broader discussion about spirituality and religion and money, but I mean, you can look through history and see why the two were always so closely wound up. And then, of course, you look at Bitcoin today and you see you see those two things kind of emerging or being more refined in parallel as we have sound money or a sounder money than we've ever had before. It's the the connections to, uh, let's say, if we don't want to use the term religious or spirituality, just the highest values that one can conceive of. We see this relationship between those two things. And, you know, you, you bring up um, Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the the verse in the Bible where he, where Jesus, you know, turns up the tables of the money changers. Yeah. That was in Matthew 21. <laughs> There we go. I mean, it was Matthew 21, but people have to understand, like, that was a scene right out of the Matrix, basically. This man launched a one-man raid against the Federal Reserve of the time and literally tore the whole place to bits himself, right? Like, that's unprecedented. No prophet ever took evil to task like that. Like, the guy is was not the the turn-the-other-cheap kind of dude. Like, he went at them with everything himself. People should respect who the Jesus really was and what his mission actually is, because when we meet him on the street, probably within our lifetimes, we want to be ready for him. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned, um, well, how this has been a historical trend, right? Money has always been the thing that's most desirable. And so it's always, people are always going to try to corrupt it in some way, or rather they're going to take advantage of its imperfections. And, you know, even, even in the case of gold, which has obviously been money for a large part of our history, 
you know, you get the problem because of its physicality. You say, all right, what if I accumulate enough of it? I don't want to be the one responsible for protecting it. Just little old me, you know, even if I have a little, a private force. So I'm going to give it to someone who has the most power, the most capable of protecting it. You know, the king, the army, the, 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 the whomever. And so then you have a situation where the most powerful entity or group now has all the wealth as well. And so you get that reconcentration of wealth again, even with a so-called sound and great money, like, like gold. And so it seems to be the case that the imperfections of the money in use will always be taken advantage of. And it's really interesting that, that now we have a money, you know, I hesitate to call it perfect because perhaps nothing is, but at the very least, it's the me, the, the ability to well, where's the attack surface basically? Like how, if someone is wanting to, to corrupt Bitcoin, seemingly there are very few ways it can be done because it can be stored and, and, and custodied by everyone. So it's not centralized in one place anymore. And therefore you don't have to give power to one individual in order to protect it. And so you're distributing that power once again. And as a result of distributing that power, you're distributing the deleterious effects of concentrated power. And so... It seems to be the case that, well, we now have a money where all those things that were done in the past, like coin clipping and reserve, uh, fractional reserve banking and, uh, you know, all the, the, the tomfoolery that's happened with money in the past, seemingly Bitcoin might is impervious to it. You know, maybe. And the question here maybe is in your from your perspective, where do you think Bitcoin's imperfections lie? Yeah, I think about the tactics that the bad guys can use. You know, I spent a long time understanding their tactics and their playbook. It is important for a true believer to understand that. And so, you know, clearly controlling the on-ramps and off-ramps into Bitcoin with whatever, you know, uh, guys they want to do, compliance, regulations, safety, etc. They've been doing that for quite a while, which is why peer-to-peer -peer is so important, right? Because you can't stop an army of mosquitoes. Uh, barring that not working, um, the core devs, I see it as an attack vector as well. I mean, of course, we have the miners and people running full nodes. They can choose to block something that they don't like, right, which is very powerful democratic mechanism that Bitcoin has, which helps in that regard tremendously. But, you know, um, to, to me, the more interesting question, actually, I think of I'm thinking offensively, actually, you know, I'm thinking what will piss these guys off the most, right? Like how, what checkpoint can we race to where they're going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. That's, that's the place we didn't want them to get to. And they just got there. We have to shut this thing down immediately. And then we need to scale that up as quickly as possible with as many cells around the world operating in, in a way that, they just have to accept the situation. So what is that critical juncture that we have to get to? We clearly have not gotten to it yet, but what is it? Because I want to be on the offense. You know, I don't yeah. want to think defensively. It's good to think defensively, of course. We should always cover our bases. Um, but the the on-ramps and off-ramps are a running battle, and that's why I focused on peer-to-peer. Because -peer. I know with there, if you made it simple and easy and safe enough, it would give us some real leverage there. They couldn't take that away from us, even if they shut down all the centralized exchanges, even if every bank in the world said, no, we're not going to do business with crypto companies. Humans can still train amongst each other. So that's the weakness I saw there. But what is that one place that we can get to that's going to piss them off to the max? What do you think? <laughs> 
Well, my, my first thought is that you're probably one of the ones on the forefront of that offense finding that out. You know, you mentioned a, mo- a few moments ago that, that Paxful, we've been talking about this regulation and, and how the people at the top of, you know, the people that control the banking interests and such are taking advantage of these onerous regulations all over the world. And Paxful is basically a mechanism in a marketplace that's able to arbitrage these regulations all over the world. Let's perhaps not all of them, but many of them. And, and basically as a result, you know, what does arbitrage do? Well, it closes the gap, but it closes the difference between things. Right. And so what you have all these siloed systems all over the world, uh, the financial system, and some of them are nefarious and some of them are not, it doesn't matter. They're all, they all have their unique characteristics and many of them don't speak with each other. And that is mostly a result of regulation and not technology. They could be speaking to them to each other, but they're not for various reasons. And Paxful is this it's like a membrane that's just allowing all of them to transfer back and forth between each other without, you know, and circumventing a lot of those artificial frictions that have been imposed there. And I think, you know, if we're talking about what's What's a way of of going on offense against these systems that we'd both deem to be likely, you know, I think we'd both agree are unfair. I think that's one of them is through technology and through, you know, peer-to-peer networks, basically uh, showing them that their efforts to silo themselves off and ring fence their unfair advantage are ineffective now, or they're increasingly ineffective, if not totally ineffective yet. And, you know, if you're, if you're looking to piss some people off, I think that's, that's probably going to be one of the ways you do that. And of course, you know, there's, there's many other ways. And, uh, you know, we talk about in Bitcoin, just moving yourself onto a Bitcoin standard as much as possible, saving in Bitcoin, earning in Bitcoin, spending Bitcoin. Um, but that takes time. And it's, you know, I, I, I would readily admit that a lot of people have kind of a, a singular mentality approach to that. It's like, all right, well, I get paid in fiat and I'm going to use a local exchange that operates in my country. I'm going to change it to Bitcoin. And that's how we bring in the Bitcoin standard. But I think that fails to appreciate just how many monies people transact in all over the world and how many money networks there are. And so, I, you know, I, I think it makes sense to assume that the answer is, is going to be as much as possible in advance of a full Bitcoin standard and everyone just preaching the good word about Bitcoin and getting the thesis and, and, and operating on Bitcoin. It's going to be using Bitcoin to circumvent all of those artificial restrictions that have been imposed on people. I, I, I think that is very much how, one, you go on offense and two, you 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 know, you ruffle the feathers of the incumbents. And, you know, again, you seem to be at the forefront of doing that. I I am one of those people on the forefront. And that's because, like you said, it's the people on the ground that are making all this happen. The more trades that happen, the more people are moving money around, the more services are being provided to your neighbor to make sure they can access the liquidity or make the payment or receive the money that they need to in the right way, the more money flows. And the more money flows, the more the street really determines the price as opposed to that shadowy figure at the top setting the price for anything with a bunch of fake paper shorts on the Forex, whether it's gold or silver or soybeans or Nigerian Naira or Egyptian pounds. Price discovery is the ultimate weapon of power and really terror that these people have. They control price discovery. 
That's what we need to take away from them. The moment there is an alternative price to whatever you know these central exchange rates are that has more psychological weight in people's minds, then we have a true tool of resistance. And every all that pressure they had gets much, much weaker. If you think about what it's really doing, all of these arbitrage, OTC, P2P trades happening everywhere, Paxful, in the street corner, on WhatsApp, wherever it might be, what it's really doing is setting a kind of street price for everything, potentially, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of street price for dollars in a PayPal account or, you know, Cam- Cambodian cash or whatever it might be, an Amazon gift card, soybeans, Venezuelan Bolivar. What we're really doing is shining a light on the black markets and bringing them up and making them fully transparent. They're not black markets anymore. They're just the people's markets, This is what the real human beings on the street have decided through the free trade they do every single day is actually the price of this. And then the power and that sword that they wield gets a hell of a lot weaker because there's something else that people can go to. And the faster we get to that point, they're going to be at a point where they can't terrorize us anymore because we have options. Mm. That's the point that we need to get to. And we haven't grown peer-to-peer fast enough. I have not. I mean, I've done an okay job, thank God, to the people of Africa, Nigeria, Latin America, India. They really, you know, they did it all. But I'm really angry at myself. I'm a little bitter at the scene in that we haven't moved fast enough. I'm mad enough to admit I'm a little frustrated, I have to say. I don't think we have much time left, brother. I think we have the next seven years max before this window really starts to close for humanity because these 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 small casts of men that control the world, right, they're in a very special place right now. They're trying to flip this switch where they're going to take us from this soft tyranny, whether you call it democracy, bread and games, whatever, and they're trying to flip it into a system of hard tyranny in which escape won't just be impossible, it will be unthinkable. COVID was a reflection of that. They're at this point right now, so we don't have much time. We need to move much faster. Peer-to-peer needs to explode. Paxful has 12 million users, almost, and about 2.5% of them are active users. It seems like a small number. That's actually pretty good compared to most internet businesses. That's nothing. That's like, what, a quarter million? We need this whole scene. What our goal should be, instead of trying to replace banks with wallets, we should be trying to to unite the entire global south as one nation, connect a billion people, not users, not even customers, but citizens. Their governments have failed to give them the things that truly matter, right? Like proper communications, store of value, and payments. We have the bedrock of these tools, right? We have... The, the internet, we have mobile phones, and now we have Bitcoin. These three things put together with the right plumbing, the right UX, the right message, and the right team, we could bring a billion engaged citizens, engaged customers, I call them citizens. If you're truly engaged day to day, then you're a citizen. That should be our goal over the next seven years. I want to bring a billion people to this space, not just, you know, yeah, I got some sats in my wallet and I'm just hodling them. No, they're using it every single day and that money is flowing around. Hodling is great, but making those sats flow is even better. That's what the mission should be. 
And we can take a page from the Telco's book, right? They didn't be, they've done a great job. Look at Safaricom launching M-Pesa. Protogenitor mm-hmm. Forerunner to Bitcoin Forerunner to PayPal. That's what we need to be le- like learning from, a total capillary mycelium play to the streets, focusing on the global south first, right? We need to have the cajones to go to the Congo and Goma and put on our poncho and go in there and meet those people. They're fucking amazing. They're hustlers. They're getting everything done and just work with them and build this up and build these cells of liberation everywhere. That's the work that needs to be done. And I want to move much faster these next seven years. This year is going to be awesome, brother. I feel it too. The positive vibe I'm feeling is so amazing right now. Like literally nothing can bring it down. I feel so good about it. It's crazy. And and every day new allies come, like the guys at Block working on TB Dex, Marco Brock, Daniel Burr, all those guys, Rahani, Suda, they, they all want to help make this happen. And they're all everyone is trying to get to 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 whoever can bring this to the streets, like the good guys. Mm-hmm. And the good guys are coming together, and they're starting to work together now. And nothing well, scares Bitcoin's, the bad guys more than that. Bitcoin's bringing the good guys together because it's virtuous itself, and it's it's bringing virtuous people together, which is one of the amazing things about it. Absolutely. But I want to I want to pick up on something you said. Um, two things. One is, you know, you mentioned that real price discovery. It, well, it's you could say it's the most powerful social or economic force there is, right? Because all it, it means is people are attempting to minimize the energetic and resource output for what they receive in return. And people are always going to economize in that way. That's what economics is. You're trying to maximize your gain and minimize what you need to deploy in order to receive it. And that is why price discovery is so important and why it takes place. Um, and as we've been discussing, you know, through central banking and fiat money and all these regulations, price discovery not only can't really happen naturally, but it's set by, you know, you know, 12, 12 old guys in a room in, in many cases. And that that has manifested downstream into an enormous suppression on human potential and on human prosperity and on human flourishing. And so it makes sense that more and more people will flock to the trades, to the areas where their time and resources can be valued more efficiently, more accurately, more fairly. And then they will exchange with people on that basis. And again, you know, it seems to me that Paxful is, is facilitating this. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, do you see a, a future where because a platform like Paxful is a place where price discovery can happen more efficiently and more fairly, regardless of, of the goods being transacted, as you said, I mean, it could be soybeans for Bitcoin, it could be phone credits for game credit, you know, whatever it is. But do you think, do you see a, a future where Paxful broadens its, you know, the things that are transacted on the platform because it's by virtue of both peer-to-peer and Bitcoin, it's simply the place where price discovery is most pristine, let's say, or most honest, and therefore people will flock to it because they're able to economize better by doing so. Absolutely. I mean, it can be extended out to anything. The core challenges are controlling fraud, number one, creating a decentralized global system of identity, and that includes a kind of credit score and reputation with it as well, like a global financial passport. Because a lot of people, you know, in, in crypto and Bitcoin, 
they want to be anonymous, but people in the global south are tired of being invisible. They want to be visible because this can allow them to access more opportunities. Someone should be able to do that in a decentralized fashion. The guys at Block and TV Dex have been working on some incredible architecture for that decentralized identity with Ion, etc. And that's what we need. We need that. That's a critical part of this puzzle, right? That anyone screaming, no, KYC is okay. Yeah, but what do people want a KYC, right? There should be a way for them to be able to do so in a decentralized way where they control all their own credentials and their own access. That would make for a much better world. Instead of we've been running away from ID because it's it's just been a tool used by the man to punish, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, identity is a foundation of commerce, really. If you're doing business with people, there needs to be some kind of trust because it might just be more than just one transaction, right? It might be an ongoing service relationship, whatever it is. That component has to be there. So instead of running away from that, we need to be running towards it, but building out in a decentralized manner. If those Mm -hmm. two things are there, then we have a real shot to make this thing happen. And the entire global south will be so thankful. Imagine six billion people that are actually have an identity on the map right now. They can actually access credit. It'll take things to a whole new stratosphere of production. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the key is is developing a system of identity where one, you can take it with you wherever you go, you know, in between platforms. Two, you can disclose you're able to disclose only what is necessary to disclose for whatever transaction or action you're engaging in. And three, it's not controlled by a government that can t- just shut you off or censor you or deplatform you if, if they want to, because then you're just, that, that is the system of control. But if you have those elements, then I, I agree with you. You really grease the wheels of commerce and, you know, then we're really off to the races. Absolutely. Look, we've got Bitcoin, like decentralized self-custody wallets. That's a huge, but it's just the foundation. Then we need the decentralized identity, right? That's very powerful. But what we really need to do is, and this is part three, right? And this is the hard one. Paxful is great and all, but it's still centralized, right? I, I'm beholden to Uncle Sam and has to do what he says and ban whoever he tells me to ban and hold people's mm. money, which is extremely painful, by the way. We just released over $2 million of user funds, saw. which we, yeah. my entire team was working nonstop for the past three months in compliance hell to make that happen. I should never have to do that in my life, right? But if what we if we had a decentralized marketplace like Paxful completely decentralized, right? That would allow for true price discovery, peer-to-peer price discovery, because it would all be on the blockchain. People will see what's happening. Of course, the dark side could try to game it and mess with it, but it'd be too expensive and they wouldn't be able to cover the entire world with it. And most importantly, people could trade with each other. The money would be allowed to flow. Liquidity discovery would happen and it could all be concealed to a, a centralized street price, I mean, a decentralized street price for everything. Those three things are what needs to happen. We have the first, we have Bitcoin. We have to really teach people and educate them how to self-custody, right? We need this decentralized ID, right? And Block is, we're very close to that. The guys at Block are working on some amazing stuff with Ion. And then we need to decentralize Paxful. And with that, what's going to allow us to do is even assign a kind of reputation or credit score to each person's ID, which is really the reason why you want to have it too. That would be absolutely tremendous. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, how, what does that look like? How does that get done? Because right now we're in 
KYC world, right? As you mentioned, we're we're in like basically 1984. Every everything needs a stamp of approval. Everything needs to you know to be sanctioned by the state or the regulators or what have you. What what's it going to take to take something like Paxful and put it in a situation where it is not and it does not have to answer to all of the onerous regulations everywhere? Like how do you how do you dex Paxful basically? Don't give away trade secrets, of course, but, you know. <laughs> it's no secret, brother. I mean, some big power moves have to be made this year to do it. You know, I love Paxful, but the world really needs this decentralized marketplace. Like, it's absolutely critical. I believe in the next 18 months it can be done. I will be leveraging all the amazing architecture that people at TVDEX and Block have been building out for the decentralized IDs. They even have some really cool uh, widgets with the decentralized data stores that could be used to make a decentralized order book. You know, even you could even extend out the BISC protocol and Altrate to be able to do that. BISC, RoboSats have done that in some capacity. But then it kind of takes us back to the chaos theory of pruning a you know a set of records right whether it's social media content on twitter or it's a, a list of potential offers and trades that could be done like who decides who can see what right i was reading some mm -hmm. of jack Doherty's, dorsey's articles on the matter quite complex but look there's ways to do it i see the ways to do it because i've already done it for the past seven years right so there's ways to do that i'm not worried about creating a decentralized order book that's doable uh, the distribution of it, I don't think is actually going to be a huge issue. I think the free market can come to its own designs. We would need a kind of Oracle marketplace as well to handle dispute, moderation, etc., things like that. And even KYC, because if you have your decentralized credentials, your decentralized ID, right, and you can choose who gets to see it or what, you decide what you want in that data store. You're going to put your passport in there. You're going to put your American driver's license in there. You're going to put your Estonian residence in there. And then you can also attend, like maybe uh, I somehow submitted this to Jumio and they verified my documents. Or I went to a notary in the UK or they verified my documents. Or you can request to see my documents for this one trade and you can look at them yourself and you can decide yourself if they're real or good or not. So there's ways mm -hmm. for all of this to happen, really. It, it's not, you know, the architecture is quite complex, but these guys have already built a lot of that. But from the UX perspective, things can be simplified immensely, and that's coming. So I think in the next two years, 18 months, we're going to start to see a real semblance of this, and I'm confident. I'm confident I can streamline and get it out to a billion humans in the next seven years. That's what I'm living for right now. My whole life, is about, I'm like, you know, the Bitcoin Batman here. That's how I feel like every day. I've got no life. It's just me and Alfred in the Batcave. It's kind of lonely, bro. I wish I had a dog. That'd be nice, but... Well, I saw your post uh, yesterday or whatever about, uh, you know, you, you lost your dog a, a while back and you were hesitant yeah. about getting a new one. And uh, from the perspective of someone to whom that's happened before, my my perspective alone, of course, but get another one. They're amazing creatures. You'll love the, the next one a ton. And as someone pointed out, you know, the former one would have wanted you to, you know, have that happiness in your life once again. So. You know, if we're having that dog discussion, I'm on the I'm on the pro get a get another dog camp. Um, I appreciate that. I think you're right. You know, Heidi was very possessive. I have to say, <laughs> she was. Um, one one question before we we move on a bit. But what do you 
actually two, you mentioned oracles and, you know, if, if we're moving into this era where identity is sovereignly held, let's say, and sovereignly sanctioned, and it's not exclusively sanctioned by the state nor controlled by them, and it's, you can disclose what you want. And of course you can transact anonymously and globally through something like Bitcoin. Uh, do you ever think about either just generally or in relation to what Paxful might be involved in in the future, uh, prediction markets? Because it's, it, I mean, that's such a, it seems like such a Pandora's box to me, but it, it seems inevitable once we have uh, sovereign identity with sovereign money. And I'm just curious if you had, you know, any particular thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, I, I kind of see it as a game. It's like a wagering game. Someone puts up a wager, you can attach some money to it, and someone can choose to take that bet. You know, put your money in here, it sits in an escrow, and, you know, we'll see who's right or wrong. I mean, if it's just used for gambling on sports or whatever that, I mean, I, I don't really think that's very kosher, but, you know, if it's a free market, it should be allowed to happen. That's not that difficult to build either in a decentralized manner. It just needs to be marketed right. My question is that is how would that actually help the world? It certainly would make revenue, I think. I think it would be very, very profitable if, if done right, but how is that really going to help the world? Maybe there's something I'm not seeing. I've never really thought about it too much. Yeah, I mean... There's probably several answers to that question, but I, I think it could almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of deal, you know, because when you when you add an economic weight to a prediction, you actually increase the likelihood that it occurs, depending on what it is, right? Not the sun rising tomorrow, but anything in the realm of human action. You know, if you say, well, I bet I bet 10 bucks that Ray's going to be in London tomorrow. Well, it's probably not going to happen. I bet 10 million bucks that Ray's going to be in London tomorrow. Well, now all of a sudden Ray, you know, maybe says, well, I'm going to bet on me being in London too, and I'm going to go to London. And then maybe, you know, other people jump in on that. So maybe that's an, that's obviously an over, overly simplified example, but I, I think it, it, it might end up um, being kind of like, like kind of like a distributed real time democracy for things where the things that people want to happen end up having an economic weight and people that put their economic weight behind things that they want to happen, if they happen, then they're, they're rewarded in some way. How can you rationalize that? And what do you think the consequences of something like that would be by having that degree of freedom available to everybody? <clears throat> in a world where that could happen and the powers that be really couldn't stop it unless they like shut down the whole internet. I mean, I, I think at that point, humanity has actually won. At that point, their only objective, the only real way to, to win would just be to let the nukes fly, right? And use just force of arms to stop everything. So if that happens, you know, I think we'll still win at that point. We just need time for the money to flow around. I think we have four years of the money flowing around the world in a free and unabated way. So much wealth will be created, so much production that will happen that Whatever they might do won't be enough. I think that's the battle we're going to have to be fighting. It's going to be a battle of inches, but there's a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not going to, they're not going to be able to push their big red button at a certain point. It's just not going to make sense for them to do so. So that's where we just have to fight it out like that. And I think humanity will win. It's prophesied that humanity will win, actually. 
It is. When, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Uh, when we talk about end games here, you know, like Paxful, there's obviously an ethic in what Paxful is doing. And as you've been discussing, it is allowing people the freedom to transact between each other without an onerous, uh, unfair intermediary. And so there's obviously an ethic in that. And the ethic is freedom between individuals to, you know, to economize, to transact freely. And I'm wondering if, if, and we talk about this a lot in the Bitcoin space, right? Like what, what will the ultimate impacts of Bitcoin be if we live, you know, if the, if the whole world becomes Bitcoinized and presumably that means these factions that we've been discussing, be they governments or large institutions, uh, won't be able to fund themselves to the same degree that they do now because they won't be able to steal from people as easily. They won't be able to engage in corrupt activities that are uh, that accrue unfair advantage to them, let's say. And so, seeming, you know, stands to reason those institutions would shrink. But I'm just curious from your perspective, when you think about, obviously you've given a lot of thought to what you're doing with Paxful and what your goal is. And I know there's there's, uh, you know, short, mid and long term, and there's goals on different scales and in different domains, let's say. But what do you think the end game of this whole Bitcoin phenomenon is in terms of what the world looks like? If not, you know, there's no final point, but as it progresses, what are we moving further into? What is being elevated? What is being diminished? And, you know, how, paint me a picture of how you think see things playing out. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the the nemesis here or the bad boy on the school playground right there's currently a a force in the world and it's a it's pretty powerful it can project power greater than any military force that's ever been fielded it's 13 aircraft carrier battle groups sailing around the world right it's u.s navy they don't need money (laughs) they don't even need the united states it can live as a self-contained entity and whatever they want, they can simply take. That's what that entity can do. It doesn't even need the United States, right? So let's just remember that. It's basically an independent kind of uh, operator. And its job is to basically lure Russia and China into a battle so that the United States is destroyed. And then something else, something else rises from the ashes, right? That's what they're trying to do over there. Okay, fine. We know that's what's happening over there. Okay, well, how about the rest of the world? And by the rest of the world, I'm talking about the global south. How about these six billion humans that are sick and tired of being poor? They're ready to move forward. They have the youth, they have their energy, they have their belief in God, and they have all these damn resources. What can we do with what we've got, not worrying about what the other guy is doing over there? Right? So if these people can start to transact between themselves, sharing the value of their work, bringing over, you know, capital from the West only as needed and transacting between themselves. And these people are going to start to get richer. And you see that on a small scale with PACs, where we've got five to six billion dollars in, in volume that have happened since inception. It's a good start. We've made, you know, people's lives better all over the world. We've created some millionaires, multimillionaires, people that have really risen and embraced arbitrage trading. Great. Let's 100x that. In fact, let's a thousand X that. How does the world look like at that point? You have a lot more people that have resources and wealth and know what the hell is going on. And they're willing to use that wealth and resources to advance their communities, right? And that means advancing the truth. 
So what's going to happen is all this noise and propaganda coming from that other side is going to be drowned out by the voices of educated, brave, and courageous people from the global south that have money. And they're all in the know, and now their voices start to matter again. And all those corrupt officials in their countries who are doing whatever the hell the West says because their bank accounts are in Paris, London, and New York, well, now all of a sudden they're going to start listening to what the people in their country are telling them to do. Because guess what? All these people are now you know, buying their time and hiring their own lobbyists. And these are conversations that I've had with people mm-hmm. in the community. When it gets to that point, it's going to be like Malcolm X said. Instead of trying to be a rapper or athlete and trying to get <clears throat> some you know, lame positioning inside the machine, take your eyes off that glitter. Look at your corner store and ask yourself who owns it. Is it one of your people? If not, you set up a corner store right across the street and you make your community and you start building up your community and your political power. That's what's going to start happening because it's not just, we're not just making people wealthier. We're giving them an advanced education and the only education that matters. And that is what is money? Where does it come from? And why, why are we poor? Why do we have to be poor? We don't. Once this educated class of citizens, you can call them Bitcoin citizens, they're no one's fools, right? They're not going to be, they're not going to be tricked anymore. Once they're up there, once they're, alive and saturating the area around them and buying the attention of those that are buying for power, things are going to change, man. Like really going to change to the point where no one's like everything that's coming from this side is just a total lie. Like everyone, no one's believing it anymore. So mm-hmm. at that point, what all they can really do is just, okay, let's pull the trigger now and blow up the whole planet. But wait a minute, what are we really getting here? They're not going to win the fight. You know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see that far into the future. But if we build up the global south and get it to a point, at least approaching parity, I think we're going to win this thing, man. I think at that point, it, there won't be that bang that we're looking for. And even if these guys, these bad guys decide to blow up the whole fucking place, you can't blow up the whole damn place. They're just going to succeed in blowing themselves up, right? We're going to be able to rebuild. That's in the absolute worst case scenario. We still yeah. win no matter what. I, you know, I think about this stuff all the time, man. But I, honestly, I never thought I'd be saying it on camera. There's certain things I've held back, my good man. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you're letting it fly because, you know, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. But, you know, that, I, that gives me a lot of hope as well because... Incentives drive the world. Incentives drive behavior. Money is the primary incentive. Money and wealth, uh, and I think that the type of economy that you and I are a part of and that we've been discussing is so fair and so efficient. So much more efficient than so in Bitcoin. You have a global open uh, monetary network where capital is priced in real time via all the decisions of everyone making of everyone making decisions in that market with their money. And it's not siloed, it's open to everyone. And then you have that competing with the extremely, albeit much bigger at this point, but extremely siloed, extremely inefficient, a lot of capital misallocation, a lot of capital controls, a lot of capital destruction as a result of that. And uh, you know, over the course of time, 
it just won't be able to compete, you know? And so, as you say, the, the, the Bitcoin nation, if we can call it that, will just continue to grow, continue to prosper, continue to develop its so-called power. And at a certain point, the, well, increasingly the opposing one will just atrophy, atrophy and atrophy and atrophy and atrophy. And then I think instead of making that big desperate move at the end, anyone who still has any semblance of power there is just going to say, it's in my best interest to join the Bitcoin nation. That's where, that's where the, the money and the happiness and the opportunity and all the things that are good about life are going to be available. So why don't I just go there instead of exactly. being an evil schmuck? Exactly. And in that sense, I think their vanity will work against them because their vanity is an all time high right now. It is so disgusting. <laughs> They're making mistakes. They just don't give it. Down. It's, it's pathetic. It's hideous, actually. But, you know, their template was pretty simple. There are three pillars of power, right? There's the financial pillar, which they took first, right? And through that, they were able to buy control of the media, which is control of people's minds. That's the second pillar. And through control of the media, they were able to get political control, which gives them military control. That's the mm -hmm. third pillar. So we're looking down the barrel of the gun of these, all these three pillars, which they've gotten control of. We just have to do it the same way they did it. We're taking back control of the financial pillar. Well, the whole world can transact. And instead of focusing on the West, which they've corrupted to the core, we're going to focus on the global South, a place where they don't want to go. Because I'll tell you, no matter how bad things get, I think Africa will still be the, first, the last free place in the world. Like, they will hold it down, man. Like, some of these Nigerian brothers, especially these Muslims, they're not going to, Muslims, they're not going to take any shit, man. Right? Once we take it back, We've got the finance. We've got people transacting. The financial clothes and is the controls in the hands of the people. We're going to naturally just acquire like media control. Like all these rich people will get the word out. People will listen to them. They have influence. They can't shut them all down. And now there's so many more of them. It's very easy mm -hmm. for them to control a few of us in the West, right? But if you have all these wealthy, successful people popping up all over the global south of all of these you know, diaspora, black, brown, and yellow people start returning back to the global south and having real power there and lending their brains and, and their wealth there, then we really have control of the narrative. And that's when you, like, you're, you're seeing this point happen, but there's just not enough firepower behind it yet, right? Because mm -hmm. we still have more work to do on this first pillar. We need another seven years, man. And then that those voices in pillar number two are going to be so, so loud, man. Everyone's just going to be laughing at this other side. It's going to be a troll. And it's going to infuriate them so much that they want to use pillar number three. Well, guess what, man? Either Russia or China could destroy the entire West themselves if they really wanted to. So they're not going to be able to cross that line. And that's the battle we're fighting. And honestly, at the end of the day, it is a spiritual battle. But throughout all these three things, they're just, you know, they're just pawns on a chessboard. It ultimately is a spiritual battle. It is an inner struggle between each of us to find our peace and our greatest source of strength. And what is that? I will leave that for people to figure out by themselves. But it's pretty damn simple that pure monotheism is the way. There's a reason why submitting to a higher power makes you stronger as a human being. It was written into our DNA, yeah, and there's no fighting against that, right? So I'm not going to preach on and put on my collar now, but... Oh, I love when you preach. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started, bro. Christy will kill me, man. She's like, man, you went full on. 
Oh, well, look, don't, don't let me or Christy hold you back. I, I love it. But, you know, as, as you're saying that, the other thing that I find so, so emboldening or energizing about what's happening here, and I mean, this is a very spiritual notion, is, you know, and now I'm doing my, my spiritual stuff, which, you know, maybe my, uh, my colleagues will get mad at me for, but I do fundamentally believe that and it's probably one of my most strongly held beliefs, if not the most strongly held, is that the truth will set you free. And in me, or in, in Bitcoin, I see a profound truth that is setting people free. And so when you say, and I know what you mean here, I'm not, I'm not contradicting what you said, but you know, we will, the Bitcoin nation will have the wealth and the power to you know, control the narrative. I, I think what we, what we both see in that is not so much imposing a narrative like is happening now, but allowing the truth to more freely emerge through discourse and through, you know, more, more open information and through the removal of the biases and the, the corruption in all forms of, you know, academia and media and politics and where, wherever it is. And I think that's the real thing that so many people are excited about. And, and as you said, that's already happening. I mean, legacy media, it still has political influence, but most people aren't tuning in to listen to the nightly news and all that garbage on CNN. People are listening to podcasts or reading articles. Like, there, I mean, already like Joe Rogan, for example, he, he he. I think his ratings are like twenty-five times primetime CNN ratings. So they're they're nothing already. It's just you know, there's still a, a, a cohort, maybe the older generation that is, is hanging on. But what I see happening is just truth emerging in all areas, in the areas of finance and, and economics and money, in the areas of, you know, media and information. And like I referenced earlier, I think what you just said, you know, and you very, you obviously have very, uh, you're very convicted in your spiritual opinions, but I, I, you know, it's one of the discourses I engage a lot in, in the, with Bitcoiners is that this is a consideration that's rising to the top of, of the minds of a lot of people in the space. Because when you have freedom, you know, when you're financially secure and you're looking out on the future and you say like, okay, I'm, I'm good. Now what, you know, what, what's, what's most valuable to me? What's most important to me? And understanding what is most valuable to you is a very spiritual thing because it's like, what else determines that? Or you could look at it from the reverse and say, well, clearly the thing that I value the most is my primary spiritual orientation. So I'll, I should probably try to understand that. And what I'm seeing in the space is a lot of people asking those very fundamental questions and it's, and it's wonderful. But to your point, I think that's what's happening. And I don't know the timeline it's going to happen. I don't know how much, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't know the timing of anything basically, but I do see this trend happening where, Truth is emerging and the reverence for truth is growing and the intolerance for dishonesty and untruth is growing as well. And let, you know, let's just put some oil on that fire because, you know, nothing could be better. Absolutely, brother. I mean, we've seen the examples of the past with honest money and the right leadership. Any nation on the planet can go from the poorest to the richest within a couple of years couple of years, four years. This has been done in the past. It can happen again. If Nigeria had those two things, honest money and the right leadership, in four years, it could be it could probably be in the top three of richest, most powerful nations in the world. Within a decade, they probably have flying cars, flying buildings, maybe a flying island. Who knows? <laughs> they would have it all. And it's not just Nigeria, Egypt, Indonesia, all these places. That's 
how fast humanity can move if humans are just allowed to express their value and use their this incredible spontaneous spontaneous creativity that we have that no other beings in creation have it's really amazing how much work humans can do in a short period of time that's what they don't want us believing they want us believing that we're just a bunch of hairless primates on a, you know, living on a speck of dust across the an insignificant speck of dust across the universe that's bullshit man we know way better than that right now and you know the it says in the last testament that a spider's web is the most fragile house in all of nature and this matrix that we're living in this dunya is truly so fragile one little scratch could bring it all down right something that manifests before people's eyes i don't know what it will be it would have to be something that would really open their eyes and it would be or maybe i don't know some guy driving a fly in Africa, driving around in a flying car, just laughing. <laughs> I don't know what it could be. Who knows what it's going to be? But that scratch is coming. And the more that we empower these people in the global south, they will deliver that. And no one will be able to take it away from them or shut it down or hide it under a bundle of dirt. This is where we're racing to. This is what I'm racing to every day because I know it's going to they're going to deliver, man. I'm putting my bets on black, bro. Like, all you have to do is go there <laughs> once and just talk to these people just for a little bit. It doesn't matter where they might be. It might be some dude from Dagestan. It might be some guy from Malawi or some dude from Costa Rica or someone from Indonesia or wherever it might be. Once humanity is allowed to fully express themselves, sky is truly the limit brother and beyond like that's gonna be amazing and it can happen fast like understand that everybody it can happen within just a few years and those leaders are out there but unless they're protected by an educated courageous and like like uh educated courageous and um willful like crowd of people around them then they'll be taken down their heads will get chopped off Right. So we're trying to build that army of mosquitoes right now that they can't stop and the leaders will emerge. They're just waiting there, but they, they no one wants to stick their head out right now and name the enemy. Like I'm here in Dubai. Right. And you always hear people in the West screaming about, oh, yeah, but the problem with that place, just try saying something bad about the king. I'm like. Why the hell would I want to say anything bad about this guy? He's done a great job. God bless this. What are you taking pride in, bro, that you can talk some shit about the president? He's not the guy in charge. He's just the goon they put in charge. His job is to take all the shit. The real people in a democracy, you don't see who they are. So what do you like? The whole argument is garbage, man. Of course, these people actually run the show here. They don't want people talking smack about them. Great. They're doing a great job. Continue. Right? Like... You know, people are like, the waking up is happening now at such a rapid rate, man. Everything mm -hmm. they've done, like COVID and all this stuff, it's just shown us who the NPCs are and brought the real people together, right? So I think we're on the upsort swing in a major way. Like here in Dubai, I swear to you, it's got the same positive energy and vibe of America before 9-11. And it feels so good, man. Mm. It's like... Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I mean... COVID was such a, just such a mess, but it seems like a lot of people have taken the proverbial red pill as a result of all the things that are now coming to light and how ridiculous everything was. <clears throat> and hopefully they take the, you know, they take a chaser with the orange pill because, you know, the red pill by itself can be a little 
you know, disheartening. It can be a little bit doom and gloom because you look out and say, oh my God, I didn't realize everything was so bad. But the, the, the beautiful thing about the orange pill is that it, it changes that perception. It, it adds a solution to the problem. You don't, ju- you don't only see the problem, you're able to see the solution. And I think, I think that would be a major catalyst. You know, all those people that were red pilled over the last year, I, I, I think a lot of them will, in their search for solutions, uh, and there are there are many solutions, of course. But if we're talking about overarching solutions to the structural problems, I think they'll land on some of them will land on that orange pill, and you know that'll be uh, another cohort of people that come into this. Um, and I agree. You know, we, we we were talking about what's the end game here, and as as that atrophy of the the legacy systems of governance and power, or as that atrophies what will take its place. And I think something, you know, a lot of been, a lot has been discussed about like the sovereign individual thesis playing out. And will we, will we go back into, you know, these sovereign, s- smaller sovereign states? Because as you said, with Dubai, you know, you, you, you disagree uh, or you think it's kind of hypocritical or whatever the, the criticism and, and I don't, I've never been to Dubai, so I can't speak on it. But what I can say is I think in the future, when people have freedom of mobility freedom to transact, you know, and other freedoms that make moving between places more frictionless, then if you don't like a place, you say, I don't like the policies here, I'm going to El Salvador because I like X, Y, and Z about what they're doing, or I'm going to, you know, wherever, all these places will pop up and they'll now be competing with each other because they'll say, hey, Ray could be anywhere. I want his money. I want the fees he's going to pay here. I want the the activity he's going to bring to the economy. So I'm going to try to attract Ray with policies that I think Ray is going to like. So I'm not going to censor his speech and I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm going to make sure there's law and you know, whatever Ray wants. And I think we'll get to see what are the most desired uh, attributes of a, of a functioning society in the future. And, you know, most likely there'll, there'll be a period where there's lots of different ones. But I, of course, I agree with you that things have gone so insane in the so-called developed world that now there seems to be a diaspora of people like you, like me, like many others that are like, I'm out. You know, I don't, I don't want to be a part of this insane stuff that everyone's getting on with that's ruining people's lives, including my own. I'd like to look for greener pastures elsewhere. And and people now have the freedom, increasingly have the freedom to do that because they can tell, take their wealth with them. So, oh, you know, I don't keep having to use that bank account in New York City. I can use Bitcoin. I can use Paxful. I can use these cards. I'm I can swim through the 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 matrix way more easily until the matrix dissolves, until I'm no longer a part of it, basically. My man, you got it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the upswing, uh, my man. It's feeling good. Absolutely. Speak, speaking of which, uh, it hasn't been since the new year, but correct me if I'm wrong, I've been noticing some extra spunk in in your tweeting behavior over the last few months. So, what's that about? And uh, well, yeah, tell me what's that about, and then I'll have, I have a follow up in mind. Well, brother, I I'm actually writing a book right now. It's going to be on my life, but there's going to be a chapter in there on what I've been going through these past two years, and it's been something like you couldn't imagine, bro. Like. I've I've wanted to do so much more, but I've literally been fighting a battle that people can't imagine, which I can't really talk about right now for legal reasons, but soon I will be able to. And then people will understand, like I'm actually starting to reveal who I really am right now. These past seven years, I just kept my head down. I've just been working. 
incessantly, building a team, real adoption, traveling around the world. Like literally, I'd be in a new city every week. I've had no peace, no time to myself, no relationships, just that. Mm -hmm. But now I've gotten over a major hurdle. I've won a huge battle that I was fighting. And now I can focus on really doing what needs to be done. So you're just starting to hear small glimpses of it. I haven't, I haven't revealed who I like, what I really am. I'm, you're starting to get a taste of of that. But there's a whole side to me that people don't know—a very spiritual side, a very—I um, I don't like to use the word scientific. I prefer the term natural philosophy instead. But I'm kind of like this Victorian dude from the 1890s. That's who I really am. And my, my dream is to finish the work of these greats and terraform the world into what it should have been. Had these, you know, small cast of dominant men that have sided with the forces of Diablo himself not had their way. If humanity had had their way. That's who I really am. I'm old school to the max. I'm cut from the cloth the dudes like like Malcolm X, like J.J. Thompson, like Nikola Tesla, like, you know, guys like Sir Oliver Lodge, uh, William Crooks. I don't know if you know these names, Goethe, Steiner, like these are the guys that are my heroes. And they had a very different belief system about the world. I have the same belief system. And just because I'm living here right now, doesn't really mean I honestly belong here. So I kind of feel like I'm an alien here in this world. I want to feel like I'm at home at least a little bit before I can buy my ticket back up there where I really belong. So as long as I'm here, I'm not going to stop trying to change this place until it's what at least we're close to what it was meant to be. Because humanity deserves better, dude. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I haven't really shown the fire inside of me, right? Like I, I pick and choose my battles very carefully, but I've got seven years to make this mission stick. Then I'm on to phase two of my mission, but I'm not going to let this thing go until we have a billion engaged citizens and we have taken back this first pillar beyond the shadow of the doubt and then from there i know we're going to take back pillar number two we've already started and then pillar number three will come and that's it we're free but someone's got to push pillar number one through to the streets in the global south and that's me i'm gonna focus all guns on that and then i'm gonna jump on phase two of my mission and that's gonna be fun. well I, I couldn't think of a better, you know, more powerful force of nature for the job than you, my man. Um, Thank you, brother. But, you know, it's, and I think that's another example, you know, what I mentioned earlier about the truth shall set you free. I mean, again, multiple reasons, personal issues, but, all, and, the, you know, Bitcoin and all, there's many things that can allow you to access and bring more, more truth into your life. But this, this is the relationship between truth and freedom. Like I see what you just said, you say, I'm more freed up to be myself. And I think a lot of people that are engaging in this space are starting to feel that way because when you're not so beholden to all the different things that people are beholden to some imposed on them, some not. Cause like we, we got to give the devil inside of us. It's due, right? Yes. Let's say we're subject to regulations that we would deem to be unfair, but also we willingly abdicate responsibility for so many things in our life to other people. Hey, bank, custody my money. Hey, you know, medical system, make sure I'm healthy. Hey, whatever, make sure I'm safe. Hey, whatever, make sure I'm educated. You know, we, we relinquish that. And it seems to be the case that Bitcoin has been an impetus for people to look at areas of their life and say, whoa, 
I've relinquished, you know, I, I'm fighting for freedom in these domains where it wasn't my responsibility or my fault, but where has it been my responsibility and my fault? And where can I, where can I take that back? And I think one of the effects of that is that a lot of people are waking up and being like, wow, this degree of freedom, now that I'm not so dependent or reliant on so many things outside of myself, that's given me a genuine opportunity to be myself. One, to ask the question who I really am, because I think a lot of people in the culture today, just you get on the hamster wheel, you, you get edu- you get so-called educated, you get into a job and you just, you don't have time to think about, you know, who you so-called, you know, quote unquote really are. But I think that now that all the, this thing is happening, people, people have more freedom in their life. They're less dependent on things. They're able to ask that question, say, who do I really want to be? And I, I think it's a genuine renaissance of, personality of character, of virtue, of value, whatever you want to call it, but that people are asking this question and like you, you know, like your example just then are, are allowing themselves and now, and have the capability to say, wow, I really know what I want to do. I have a better idea of who I really am. And I want to, you know, I want to lean into that as much as possible because there's nothing, there's nothing more important than doing that. Yes, sir. It feels damn good. Let me tell you, man. It's living my whole life like an alien is not cool, man. (laughs) (laughs) I've kind of grown into the role, but, you know, I just want to see people happy all around me. And I know we can live in a world where that's possible. It really is possible. We have everything, everything around us so that everyone is rich. Like literally everyone can be rich. And by rich, I don't mean, (coughs) you know, we're, you know, driving Ferraris and Lambos and whatnot. I just mean you never have to worry about money ever you have everything you need you're eating good food you're living in a good place you can move around you don't have to ever be desperate and scrounging for money everything we need can be taken care of and then at that point if you want money because you want to do greater things or you want whatever then let your ambition carry you forward that's what i mean by rich like literally we can take you don't have to attach a label to it like socialism or whatever mm-hmm. it's just what the natural free market can provide mm-hmm Totally agree. Has this um, attitude, let's say, renewed, renewed attitude, uh, and importance on resolving these issues we've been discussing in the in the seven year timeline that you just mentioned, or you know thereabouts, basically, is this, the severity of our circumstance the reason why seemingly you've taken a, a more focused approach to things? And by that, I'm alluding to the recent delisting of of ETH from the Paxful platform? Yeah, bro. It really is. I mean, I'm just going to look at... I'm honestly, I'm desperate for us to move faster. We've wasted too much time. And this whole FTX thing and all this garbage showing me like, you know what? We've just been fucking around all this time. And we've been tolerating all this bullshit and noise around us. And we're just like, all right, whatever. They can do what they want. No, man. It is our responsibility to steer this ship in the right direction. And if we keep wasting time and we keep allowing attention, energy, and resources to be diverted elsewhere to what this little imaginary sandbox that some kids can play with and and throw around monkey picks and, and tokens and all this shit, yeah, okay, you might figure out something useful. Like I thought Ave was a useful invention there, credit and lending. I thought that was a good use case. But honestly... Has the good, like, what good has it created for humanity right now, honestly? Well, Bitcoin has created tremendous good. 
And that, mm. we need as much momentum behind one clearing layer as possible for us to even stand the chance of winning this thing. So why the hell are we wasting our time over here? I said, you know what, I'm tired of this shit. Let's be based, like really based, like no zero tolerance. Fuck all that. Divert your attention over here. All you smart people, stop wasting your time. Come over here. Let's focus on this Bitcoin thing. And by the way, no, let's stop, stop worrying about the price. Let's focus on the purpose. To focus on the purpose, we're going to have to step away from our desks for a minute. And we're going to have to go to places where people actually need this stuff. And we're going to have mm -hmm. to talk to those people as human beings and look them in the eye and tell them, hey, this is how this thing can help you. And I'm not here to tell you what to do. You've already shown us how this can be used. So here are your brothers and sisters. This is how you can get started. You can start with 10 bucks. You can start making this money flow around the world. You can create money for yourself and you can make the things that were hard easy and make the things that were impossible possible. All without asking them for a dime. You're not asking to invest in anything. You are mm -hmm. simply showing them the path to what they have been waiting for. It is truly the orange pill. And now if we can get all these smart, driven people to come with us on this holy crusade, focus their energy in the right place, we can actually win this thing. And the next seven years, we'll see a radical shift. And the narrative will shift. Like, I'm tired of, like, the garbage I see on crypto Twitter with all these clowns posting this fucking nonsense and people actually buying into that. I'm quite frankly angry. I'm, mm. It's coming from a place of anger. Like, I'm just enough of this shit. If we, someone has to just shut these fools up, man, and let's work on this. That's it, man. Like, I don't know where it's, it's come. There's a bit of rage in there, I have to admit, but my intentions are good, man. I just don't want to waste any more time. But the window is closing, brother, and I want to win. Mm. At the end of the day, only winning matters, even more than the truth, man. Like, you want to say the truth so hard? Yes, I want to say it too. I want to say all the truth right now, but I can't. There are things in my heart right now that I know that I have researched for 11 years, reading, you know, banned history books and all this shit that I cannot tell you, that I cannot say for good reason. It would be stupid to do so. The world is not ready for that. So I will bite my tongue and I will bide my time and I will focus on the problem that needs to be solved and I won't let any bullshit get in my way. And if I see someone valuable and useful to the cause, I'm going to do my damnness to bring them over because we need every brother and sister to make this happen. Does that answer your question, brother? It does. We'll call it a righteous indignation instead of an anger, perhaps. Perhaps Thank that's you, more appropriate. <laughs> uh, to, uh, to put that... You know, uh, sacrifice is probably too good, good a word, but to put that decision in perspective, and again, you know, obviously not asking you to share anything you don't want to, but I mean, how much did you have to leave on the table to do what you thought was right in, in that case, you know, in terms of percentage of volumes or whatever on, on the platform? It wasn't really making us that much money because we pushed Bitcoin so hard, but, you know, it's like... Why allow? I had never really wanted to add ETH ever, actually. It was only our uh, former CTO, CPO, which I fired, thank God. He wanted to push all that stuff. He wanted to push NFTs and all this and that. And it just happened when I was, you know, I was traveling the world doing my thing. 
So I never really wanted it to happen. And, you know, all these, when I, when I did this post, all the ETH boys came at me, you know, with the savagery. They were mad. You know, my classic response was, you mad, bro? But some of them really were coming at me with extreme emotions, like, you still have ETH for stable coins. Admit it's useful. <laughs> Fine. It's useful. Yes. It's almost as useful as Tron. Actually, it was just more expensive. Tron does a better job for stable coins. So you consider yourself about as useful as Tron, except I don't think Tron has caused as many scams as ETH. Which is quite a thing, but Strawn is a massive fucking scam, right? But hey, yeah, sure, it's useful in that respect. So, you know, I I think it was the right move, man. Absolutely, I would do it again. I wish I did it sooner. I wish I never allowed it on the platform, honestly. We've been only Bitcoin for like six and a, six years. We were only Bitcoin. And oh, I was really? very, yeah, for six years, Paxwell only supported Bitcoins. And I said, okay, let's add stable coins. People, stable coins are a real use case. People need them. Let's add them. Right. And that makes perfect sense. Stable coins are extremely useful. Right. They're a good piece of kit. We should definitely keep them. But then, you know, ETH got in there, was, oh, yeah, we need it in the wallet. Oh, why don't we let people trade in? Anyway, yeah, it happened. I wish it didn't happen, but I'm not afraid yeah. to admit when I'm wrong monkey off your back feels good to have that gone and just focus on the good stuff absolutely man i think everyone else should do it too you know there's a lot of volume Amen. happening in ETH. they won't do it but why not man like we're the winning side right here and history will prove that we are on the right side of history so you can yeah. come over now you can be a johnny come lately later and enjoy that revenue it's your call yeah and you know aside from the in the individual and personal effects, you know, knowledge of making that kind of a choice. I do think uh, that Bitcoin nation we've been referring to in all the different ways that it will reward people in the future will reward people that made the so-called virtuous decision earlier. You know, people that did what they, they, because, it, you know, this obviously this, or I shouldn't say obviously, my, my perspective, this culture emerging around Bitcoin is one that elevates virtue more than general culture like it places a, a a more emphasis it places more value on virtuous behavior on character <clears throat> and you know many people in the space believe that choosing just to maximize revenues by offering every other shitcoin under the sun versus focusing on bitcoin and amplifying and exploring all the different ways that that could be offered to people made better amplified etc uh, is the right thing to do and I, I, I do think there will be a remembrance of, of people that recognize and act on that recognition early versus late. And how many communities in the world can you say that about besides Bitcoin? Not many. I can't even name one, honestly. Like, it's, I mean, it's pretty much only Bitcoin that really respects integrity, virtue, and has the balls to defend its boundaries. Well, that's the important one. Yeah. Yeah, that's the important. The only other belief system that still has the, you know, the cajones to defend its boundaries is Islam. Like, you don't talk smack about the prophet, Jesus, Muhammad, any of them. They'll protect that. There's a certain line you don't cross. I think that's very respectable. And the only mm -hmm. other community I've seen that in is Bitcoin. Like, the Bitcoin maxis, you can call them toxic or whatever. They defend their boundaries beautifully. I have never seen that before. There's very few groups of people in the world that will do that, that are not 
monolithic in nature and related by blood. But the Bitcoiners are bound by this thing that kind of smells like monotheism. It mimics a lot of the beauty and strength of it. And I'm, that's very beautiful to me. It naturally draws me in. Yeah. Well, I think you hit on something very interesting there, but we'll leave it for a, another discussion, perhaps. Um, Ray, one of the things that you've done that's been awesome uh, has been this all these initiatives and going to places in the global south and south south and helping people uh, become educated around Bitcoin, building infrastructure, schools, uh, wells, access to water. You know, all of these initiatives uh, built with Bitcoin. I think is is uh, what one of them is called. Is there another? Is the no, educational no thing? Yeah, but it has many issues. Yeah, like we just right, right. the Bitcoin Technology Center in Uganda. They build schools, etc. So, I mean, what's that been like? And not just you know devoting the capital to doing that, but what's been the human experience for yourself of that like? And going into these places, educating, giving access to water, like you know. As you all often say, being boots on the ground, shaking hands, and and seeing the reaction to people when they're given something that can benefit them, you know, so greatly, really. Well, this is going to sound kind of strange, but I have been working so hard these past few years and so focused that sometimes you you almost start not feeling anything. <laughs> you become very numb to everything. Yeah. I certainly am not capable of maintaining relationships or anything like that. I'm just so focused on what I'm doing. And when you go to like that first school I went to, I went to see its opening in Rwanda. I was there for one day. I flew like 27 hours to get from Estonia to Rwanda and back. And I was just there for eight hours just to see the opening of the school, which I donated myself completely. It's what I wanted to do with that first like disposable money that I had. I could have bought a nice car or this or that, but I didn't. I decided, hey, I want to build a school in Rwanda. I've never been to Rwanda. You know, my I met this dude on Instagram who had his own non-for-profit and was building orphanages in Afghanistan. His name was Yusuf Nasari. I was very impressed with what he's doing. He told me, yeah, I want to build a school in Rwanda. And I said, cool, let's do it. Let's build that school in Rwanda. I'll help you. And I donated everything to build the school and I went there and I saw those people and honestly, those children, I felt so alive. Like I felt really good for like, it had been five years before I'd felt alive and human like that again. So it kind of got addictive. I wanted more of that. I really wanted to feel just at peace. Like the problem is when you keep doing everything that you're doing in this space and you're dealing with all of these internal battles and fighting these external forces and you're you know you're literally going up against the lieutenants of diablo himself you you start to lose touch with your humanity a little bit you know and you want to just look at people that are still alive and these young children they're so happy man like they come out there the day of the opening and they're all dancing for us and they're just they're just showing this this like real vigor of humanity like they are living in the moment i I very rarely get to see that in my life. You'd be surprised. I'm not some wild party guy who goes out and die. no, I'm literally a super like closeted nerd that just works all day. And that became the only real way I got to saw like that genuine spark of just human like life and emotion and creativity. 
And I, I had that once before in my life early on when I helped reopen the school in New Orleans with these five Dominican nuns. And that was really amazing too, man. It was then the kids mm -hmm. came back that first day and I saw them. I was like, wow, I really made a difference here. You know, that city could only open up because there was a school where the police and fire department could put their children, right? I felt really, I felt important. You know, like I actually mattered. I actually did something that mattered instead of, you know, just trying to make this revenue here, build this product there, put up this website there. It was a shift in my life that, and maybe saying it made me feel important is, is a very callous way to say it, but that's just how I felt. Like I actually mattered. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like my life had real value and meaning. And these kids were infectious, man. It felt good to be around them and see them so happy. I know maybe well, I, wish, I wish I had a better answer than that, but. Well, that's a great answer. What are you talking about? You know, it makes me think that so often we're chasing the carrot, right? Whether it's what we want to achieve in life, money, success, whatever. And then you have these moments of realization where it's like, well, what are the things that bring you the most joy? It's probably not like the bank account having another zero on it. You know, most often, you know, it can, a natural, a beautiful natural environment is, is amazing, but it seems to be the case that most often the things that brings the most joy is joyous interactions with other human beings. And it sounds like it's been your experience and it's something that it's been my experience too, but I'm only just, I'm still, I'm still attempting to appreciate and understand it more fully, but it's actually giving to other human beings, not always seeking to receive and take, but actually it seems like the things that are the most fulfilling and the things that mo make people feel the most alive, the most, uh, the most uh, significant perhaps is when you willingly, without any notion of return, uh, give what you have to the benefit of other people. And then just so happens that what you get back in terms of the relationship or the, the love, or even if you get nothing back, you get a tremendous amount back in a, in a weird sort of way. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, of course I keep relating everything to Bitcoin cause that's what we're discussing, but that's been one of the things that I've noticed as Bitcoin begins to free people financially, you know, as people get to quit their fiat jobs or at least not so dependent on them. And they're, you know, as, as they have greater security about their future, I'm seeing a lot of people become a lot more compassionate and generous and wanting to contribute to certain causes, you know, being more generous in general. And I'm seeing the, 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 the joy that people are getting out of that. It's, Again, it's really amazing. I mean, how many, you, you asked me a few minutes ago, like how many communities do you see that degree of like holding people to a, a more ethical standard? It's like, yeah, but then you add on top of that, the generosity, and then you add on top of that, the hope for the future. And then you add on top of that, you know, their own personal development. And then you add on, and then you add on, and, then, and it's like, wow, like what, what culture or community has all those things smashing together, being held together by, or, or brought together, imbued, expressed, amplified by this little orange pill that, that, that people have been taking. It's really remarkable. But, you know, to your point, uh, I, I fully appreciate what you said because it's something that I've, I've only just begun to kind of scratch the surface of myself and it seems to be true. And there's another thing too. It's a smaller thing, but it feels good to build real things, you know, like real structures too. Like, you know, a lot of my friends are, running off and buying islands and stuff and building their own little Bitcoin citadel. 
which is cool. God bless them for doing so. I'm sure that it might be useful one day. But I kind of want to build citadels for other people and expand out there or even around me, but like amongst people where they can come, learn, benefit, like real cells of like civilization. Again, it feels good to build real things, you know, because when you're building stuff in the ether and online and in code for your whole life, and you can actually build real physical structures and see people benefit from them, whether they're children, growing ups or whatever, that's a really good feeling too, man. It really is mm. nice, actually. Mm. And you can get very creative. The more creative you are, the more you can do with that, the more of an impact you can have. There's a lot of stuff I want to do. I want to build, like, truly holistic, you know, centers for healing, you know, based on suppressed technology. I want to, I want to bring back the Steiner schools with a truly hermetic curriculum, right? I want to bring back things that... You know, I spent a long time researching and I thought we're gone that people would call pseudo this or fake or legacy. No, it's all real. I want to bring this back. Humanity deserves that. And when you can make it real and physical, it feels good. And building those schools was just like a taste of that for me. And I know it would do real good. Like if I built something nice here in Dubai or New York, okay, maybe it would make money. Maybe some people would enjoy it. But I want to do something really pure like where people would definitely benefit from it, like 100%, and it's so needed. Surefire, karma, critical hit. That's what I wanted, and I got <laughs> it, bro. And I've been getting more of those critical hits, and every time I get let me tell you, man, the karma comes back, bro. You could say I'm greedy in that sense, because when you do business with God, when you give God a loan, so to speak, like that, God returns back at least 10x, at least at the lowest, and that's pretty fast the karma multiplier what comes by how do you interpret you know god's interest on the loan like by that i mean how does it come back to you by fulfillment and and satisfaction by you i know, mean no man money <laughs> money bro <laughs> like god gives you money <laughs> whatever he's gonna help you get to the next step if you need God will just give you like everything you need, including money. Like God just and he delivered fast, came back fast, man, real fast, bro. You thinking of something in particular here? Well, when I built that first school, I swear to you, I think it was like two months after that that we had like a five x in revenue, and I got all these product ideas and I put them through, and boom, revenue just got like it. It was a multiplier that just came in immediately. And I was actually praying for that for a while. But when I did that, man, it just went straight to the stratosphere. Like huge opportunities would just emerge out of nowhere. Like amazing people would just come to me. They're like, hey, this is what I've been doing on your plug. It's, it's just so much. And it comes from all angles. You know, to think it was just a coincidence, maybe just the energy I'm giving off. Well, that energy came from somewhere and it came from the intention of my deeds. And that's what we'll be judged mm -hmm. by, by the intentions mm -hmm. of our deeds. And if your intention is to help people, great. If your intention is to get that karma multiplier back from God, well, that's fine too. God's cool with that as well. At least you did the right thing. You're going to get the karma multiplier. There's nothing wrong, folks, with doing good deeds to get the karma multiplier back. And if it's money you want, there's nothing wrong with that too. Do good shit. Watch what happens. It's great. Right. I, I think that might be a good place to uh, to finish this. I like that ending. <laughs> it works, man. It works, dude. <laughs>
And there's nothing wrong with wanting money and success. Give and see what happens, man. Extend God alone. He's going to come back at least. I might be 70x, honestly. And in fact, there's a special day of the year. Ramadan, actually. Where the karma multiplier is literally like 21,000% or something like that. It's called Laylatul Qadr, Night of Power, the Night of Destiny. It's equivalent to a thousand months. So if you multiply all that together, it's like 21,000% or something karmic return on anything you extend out. It works. <laughs> well, do some, <laughs> take advantage. But, you know, just bef- before we shut it down, I, I think also, and I'm not saying this is this departs from a spiritual sort of perspective because, you know, at a certain point, how do you make the distinction? But I think when you orient yourself towards focusing on giving and providing more than receiving, that I think either comes from or instills a sense of, of humility and gratitude for what you have. Say, I, I, I'm, I'm good and I have the capacity to, to give and provide to other people. And I think with a, a, a perspective of, of gratitude uh, and humility, the things you encounter in your life are more you're more likely to see them as as good you're more likely to be grateful for them you're more likely to uh to uh, ascribe a to use somewhat psychological terminology here a positive motivational significance to them now you might call them another word you could use for that is is karma right god paying you i mean again where's the distinction distinction it's just a matter of perspective really or perception um but again i i i think that's a lot of people, you know, reflect on the propensity for truth, a higher power or something like Bitcoin to humble people. And I, I do think that is a fundamental hall- hallmark of the highest truths is that they humble people because they are more fundamental than you in a sense. So you're the one that has to kind of subordinate yourself to a truth rather than it being able to change based on your, let's say, whims, perhaps. And uh and so humility seems to be that hallmark. And I think what we're discussing here is it's, it's capacity to bring uh, goodness, to bring joy into your life as a result of having that type of orientation t- toward it. Absolutely, brother. It, it's a form of worship. It's a form right. of worship of the creator because you're putting yourself below like this power. You're submitting to this power and the rules that it's created. And when you do that, it's a form of worship, and man, it's very profitable as well. Like, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that, because God wants us all to be rich. So, like, yeah. yeah, do good to help people, but man, I promise you, I swear to you, on my life, it will come back to you. It will come back to you in making you feel good. It will come back to you in money. It will come back to you in opportunities. It will come back to you every which way possible. Don't be afraid to do that. I know that sometimes we're just afraid to give, but oh, like. And that's that kind of, like, I grew up poor, and my parents grew up poor, right? So they have that fear of giving, and anyone that's come from mm-hmm. never, like, a poor place, minority families, they're all kind of besieged with that. It's almost a generational curse of kinds. But no, man, we can get over that. Of course, like, don't give everything away, you know, all things in moderation. I believe zakat in Islam is 3% giving away each year of your all your earnings it's 3% pretty reasonable right so just start there and see how it feels but you got to find a mm-hmm. good cause i recommend built with bitcoin 
95% of donations <laughs> go straight to the people. It's my favorite charity, but there's some great ones as well. Charity Water for one, some really good ones. Anita Posh's work. This, I mean, within Bitcoin, you've got people that if you give them money, it's going to go straight to the people. And then that's another huge blessing upon us. Got a lot of it. 100%. Ray, it's always awesome to sit and jam with you. And I know we could go for another three or four hours and go down some of the really weird rabbit holes, but okay. we'll have to save that for the next time we're in, in meet space together. Yes, um, any last words or places you want to direct people or anything you want to say before we shut it down? It's going to be a great year, guys. Enjoy it. Know that we deserve it. I know whenever anything really good happens and you're feeling really good, we have a suspicion to be like, oh, man, what horrible thing is going to happen next? <laughs> Whatever happens, enjoy this. There's more good feeling, more good times, and more good things coming down the pipe. Everything else is just a challenge. We're going to enjoy that, too. This is a great year for us. This is our year. I think it's going to be very, very special. And we've already been through some really hard stuff these past few years. So let's enjoy this, guys. Let's feel good. Let's keep building. Let's, you know, people are saying take some risk off the table right now. I say, hey, take some risks with your time, with your ambition, with the people you choose to build with. It'll come back to you. It's a great year. And I feel amazing. And I'm blessed. Be humble. Be grateful. Peace. Amazingly said. Uh, appreciate you, brother. Peace, brother. Love you, bro. Peace. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Ray. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at Ray Paxful and visit Paxful.com to learn more about the platform and the other awesome initiatives which he and the team are working on. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and I wish you all the best for a peaceful, prosperous, and beautiful 2023. See you next time.